So if you could turn to Hezekiah, I mean Hezekiah, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, 30 I should say. 2 Chronicles chapter 30 is the scripture that we're going to be looking at and focusing on. And so <clears throat> just to give us a bit of an overview, um, we have, we're into series in, in this particular series on Hezekiah. We're looking at the topic of revival. And so this is the fourth message in that series, and uh, we've gone through verse or chapter 29, and now we're moved into verse 30. So as I said from the onset, I'm no expert on the topic of revival, but the Word of God is. And as we look at the nation of Israel, having uh, as they walked with the Lord and as they didn't walk with the Lord and they drifted away from God, rebelled and all of those things, they had seasons of revival where a righteous king would come along and uh, would, um, um, you know, would take leadership and bring the, um, the nation uh, back into um, a right relationship. And, there was, and that gives us a picture of revival in a sense where as we, uh, these things are lessons for us, the Bible says, so we uh, can pick up various truths and principles from the scriptures. So praise the Lord. We're going to read and we're going to focus on chapter 30 um, this morning on the reign of Hezekiah. Now you remember last time we did come together, we looked at the fact that um, atonement was made once the temple had been restored and cleansed and the rubbish had been removed and we made all the various spiritual applications of these things. We understand that worship was set in its proper order and there was worship restored and the people were worshipping God and, and the Bible says at the end of chapter 29 that these things happen suddenly. And so we looked at various scriptures in the Bible where suddenly God appears, where God comes, and how suddenly, instantaneously, things can change in our lives through the power of God, through the grace of God, through God's divine intervention. And so we want to continue to look at the story of Hezekiah, of the nation of Israel. We want to look and read for uh, chapter 30 and, uh, and see, because in this uh, chapter, we see that Israel under Hezekiah is going to keep the Passover, the feast of Passover. And this is something that hadn't happened for a very, 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 I mean very, very, very long time. And so Hezekiah is reinstituting this. And again, we're going to look at the process of events and what they have to teach us. Because we made the point as the scripture says in chapter 29, how Hezekiah says, it's in my heart. And from being in Hezekiah's heart, he shared that with the priests and he shared it with the Levites and they embraced it and it was imparted into their heart. And then they came together amongst the people of Judah and they're bringing them along with them and it was in their heart. But now it extends even further as we will see here in chapter 30 and uh, as a call goes out amongst the whole nation of Israel, remembering that Israel and Judah are two separate kingdoms now with, uh, and, and more than that, Israel is in captivity because of their disobedience to God and they're already gone under the captivity of Assyria, uh, the Assyrian Empire and so uh, Judah is standing alone. But Hezekiah, through the spirit of revival, is now extending this to the nation itself and we'll pick these things up as we, uh, as we consider the sequence of events. But if there's a thought that we can take out of chapter 30 as we, as we go, it is this again. And it's reiterated, prepare our heart to seek God. Prepare our hearts to seek God. This is the common theme that we are beginning to see as they uh, open the doors of the temple, draw near to God, seek God, pray, cry out to him, make confession of sin and all the things that are going on. What we find here now in relation to the Passover is again this emphasis, an important point of preparing our hearts to seek God. So let's read chapter 30. Praise the Lord. Has that noise stopped? Thank you, Jesus. All right. Verse 1. And Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah 
And also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, uh, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Bathsheba to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the, with the letters from the king and, the leader, and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel and he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary and he, uh, which he has sanctified forever and serve the Lord your God that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren, uh, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, so that they may come back to, the, to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful, and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So the runners passed from city to city, through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun, and they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. And many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. They arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem, and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. The priests, the Levites, uh, were ashamed and sanctified themselves and brought the burnt offerings to the house of the Lord. They stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the men of God. The priests sprinkled the blood received from the hand of the Levites. And there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves. Therefore the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people from many, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. For the Lord God of his fathers... Though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days with great gladness. And the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. And they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord of their fathers. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. And they kept it another seven days with gladness. For Hezekiah, king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep. And the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep. And a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced, and the priests and Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel, and those who dwell in Judah. So there was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place in heaven. Amen. So this is a picture, amen, of revival. Having made the preparations and having done all that they're doing, God is meeting with the people and the children of Israel. And if there's anything that I want to emphasize, as I said earlier, obviously the issue is always about here preparing our heart to see God. 
But at the same time, I want to highlight a various truth that we're picking up here in this chapter, and uh, we can relate it specifically to what I would say I would call an evangelical spirit. And uh, in the sense that what we see in this particular scripture is Hezekiah is, uh, is intent with the leaders on keeping the Passover of the Lord. But in doing so, his heart is to, wants to bring everybody with him. Amen. As we do. When, we, uh, when God's at work, uh, we want everyone to jump on board. We want everyone to be involved. We want to invite sinners to come into the house of God to be saved. And so Hezekiah, his heart is such that he's extending the invitation. Not, he's, remember, he's the king of Judah. And not only has he got Judah in mind, he has Israel in mind, knowing that they have been disobedient, knowing that they are in captivity, knowing that they are being severely chastised by God. And yet he sends letters out to all Israel, inviting them to come to Jerusalem to keep the feast together and to worship the Lord. And so you can see Hezekiah, in a sense, he has a spirit of evangelism. He's wanting to invite and spread the good news amongst them all and invite them all to come and participate in the same way when our heart is on fire for God, we also want the brethren, amen, to participate, come to the house of God, be in fellowship with the brethren, and also we invite sinners to come and hear the gospel and be saved. And so it's in that sense uh, that we are, uh, I want to just bring that to our attention because evangelism is, uh, is a, a natural byproduct of being, uh, of soul and souls being saved is a natural byproduct of revival. Remember I said to you before that revival is not fundamentally about souls or sinners being saved. Okay, it's about the reviving of God's people who have been, uh, who are dead or who are uh, in, uh, dead in a sense, or then they need to be revived or brought back to life. That's what revival is. It starts with the people of God. And so, but then it extends beyond. And this is the sense that we're picking up. And so when you look at and study the revivals in the church and church history, you find that uh, as God revives his work and he moves amongst his people or he moves amongst a nation or, or community, they, uh, then people inevitably are swept into the kingdom of God and people are getting saved as they come under the conviction of sin and God is on the move. And so this is the spirit of revival. It touches everyone, but it begins in us. That's the, that's, that's the truth we're trying to establish here. And so what it is, as we consider also this particular chapter, it is important for us to consider the context, as I've already mentioned, concerning Israel and Judah. Because uh, remember, the, the, the kingdoms have been divided now uh, since Solomon and uh, his disobedience to God in which his heart turned from the Lord and the, 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 the nation was uh, split into two. But God in keeping covenant unto, unto David, he kept uh, that lineage of the kings, uh, but also there was those, uh, uh, those tribes of Israel, the ten tribes that were set up. And so you had now two kingdoms uh, uh, operating parallel. But Israel had more wicked kings, as we know, than Judah. And so Israel was already more advanced, if you want to say, in their, in, in, uh, in their chastisement and the way in which God was dealing with them. And so they got to a point that God had already sent the invading army of the Assyrians some hundred years prior there. And they had already been overcome and overridden by the Assyrian Empire and scattered and taken away. And there were others that were left. But that was the state of the northern kingdom of Israel at that particular time. And it's a sad story. But that's the situation. But Judah still has a, a righteous king now in Hezekiah. And knowing that even Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, was a wicked king. But Hezekiah is a picture of revival. We're seeing God move amongst his people. And we're seeing that it is extending also to the people of Israel in the northern kingdom. And that's important for us to understand. Because you see, God... God's heart is always for his people. And God's intent and desire is to revive his people. And not only that, let us understand that God always has a remnant. Amen? 
in the midst of, of the apostasy, in the midst of, of uh, wherever uh, uh, the, the church is turning away from God and whatever it is that's going on around us, uh, they might be serving the bowels and the asterisks, but there's always a remnant that is God has uh, uh, set aside and they will serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And so this is, again, certain, to a certain degree what we're seeing in our midst. So... The northern kingdom, Israel, is apostatized. Remember Jeroboam, when he became king um, after Solomon, and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was king of Judah. Remember, it was um, Jeroboam who set up an idol in uh, Dan, and um, uh, he said uh, because he wanted to stop them from traveling to Jerusalem. Because three times a year, they would have to travel in the Feast of Passover, Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They would have to travel into Jerusalem from around Israel to keep the feast together. And so Jeremiah saw, uh, sorry, Jeroboam saw this as a threat. So he said, you know what, I can't have them traveling to Judah with, uh, with King Rehoboam. So what I'll do is uh, I'll set up an idol here and say, here's your God that brought you out of Egypt and we'll just worship here. And that's what they, and that's that's what happened, and so um, uh, that's what Jeroboam did. But what's interesting is during that time that Jeroboam did this, there was a remnant of people that actually uh, turned away and went uh, to travel and journeyed to Jerusalem. For example, in Second Chronicles, chapter eleven, verse sixteen, the Bible says. And after the Levites, this is now this is um, after um, all, all of these uh, these things are happening with Jeroboam and so forth. It says in verse fourteen, for the Levites left their common lands and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem, for Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests to the Lord. So you can see what's happening. And in verse sixteen, it says, and after the Levites left. Those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel. There it is again, to seek the Lord. So those that had set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So even then... You have the same principle. There were those in the midst of the apostasy, in the midst of the idolatry, in the midst of the rebellion and disobedience. They said, you know what? My heart is set. I'm in living in Israel and I'm living amongst this wickedness, but my heart is set on seeking God. And as a result of that, they would travel to Jerusalem to keep the feasts. And in some instances, they migrated there because there was no, now no, nothing for them uh, because of what was going on with Jeroboam in, during that time. But there's always a remnant that will set themselves to seek God. And really this forms the backdrop of what we want to look at as we consider Hezekiah this morning and as we move through chapter 30 uh, and uh, draw some of these valuable lessons. Because here's Hezekiah in verse 1 of chapter 30. And it says, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah. Now, he's not the king of Israel as such, but he, sends, he sent to all Israel and Judah, and he wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover of the Lord God of Israel. So Hezekiah, in this evangelical spirit, uh, is extending himself and he's, in, uh, and he's, he's sent to, um, to all Israel and all of Judah to come to Jerusalem, come to the house of God, come to keep the Passover, come seek the Lord with us. He wrote letters. The Bible says he wrote letters. And so they were determined to join together to keep the, the feast. And this is the spirit in which Hezekiah is operating. It's an evangelical spirit as such. He's wanting everyone to participate and share in the good uh, uh, news of serving the Lord in truth, uh, in righteousness and holiness. And he's, they are intent on keeping the Passover. Now it says in verse 3, For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves and had, 
and had the people gathered together, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. So obviously this is happening very quickly. And so the priests aren't fully consecrated. The people aren't, uh, they can't keep it. Remember the, first, the feast was to be kept in the, uh, the first, um, uh, in, in the, 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 couldn't be kept at the regular time. Uh, so they did it in the first month. So they did it in the second month. And again, in Scripture, there's actually, um, in Numbers chapter 9, verse 6, there's actually, um, in, or in chapter 9, 6 onwards, it tells us that there were provisions made in the law that if they weren't properly cleansed in keeping the Passover, that then they could keep it the following month. So Hezekiah is operating in accordance with that as well. That's what's also happening. But they are determined to keep the Passover. And then it says in verse 4, and the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. So look at verse 5. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Bathsheba to Dan that they should keep the Passover of the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. You know, when it comes to seeking God, when it comes to serving God this morning, there has to be a resolution in our heart. Can you say Amen. You see, you can't just go about the Christian life haphazardly. You can't just go with a sense of complacency. You can't just drift along in cruise control and just be haphazard in the way in which you serve the Lord. You see, in seeking God, in having our heart right with the Lord, we have to be uh, focused. We have to be determined. Or in this sense, as we see in the scripture, we have to be resolved in our heart that we are going to serve the Lord. And this is what you find right throughout scripture, especially concerning the nation of Israel and the prophets. Remember the prophet Elijah? He comes to Ahab and the children of Israel there and, uh, and he says to them, How long will you falter? Choose. Or Joshua, when he spoke, he says, choose this day whom you will serve. And so the, always the, the God in his dealings with his people will always bring us to a point where we would resolve the issue. Are we going to serve God and with our whole heart or are we going to do our own thing and do our own way? Because, uh, because God has to be first. Can you say amen? And so there has to be a resolution in our heart. How long will we falter uh, 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 and be in two minds and be double-minded and dance around the issues and avoid making the choices that need to be made? Because God will bring us to a point in our lives through circumstances where you will either make the choice and choose this day whom you will serve. And so here we have Hezekiah and the people, they have resolved what they're going to do. They are intent. And truly for the Christian, this is so important for us in, 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 at various stages of the Christian life. Because we can make various choices, but we can drift. We can compromise. We can move into areas where we ought not to be. And the time comes where we have to again reassess and we have to re-examine and we have to resolve. Resolve some issues in our lives. And how often we try and avoid resolving unresolved issues. Can you say amen? We try and put them to the side. We try and not face them because there's a cost that might be involved or because it's a hard thing to have to deal with or whatever the case may be, it's going to require some level of sacrifice. But doesn't matter. It, the fact of the matter is, is we have to resolve the unresolved issues in our lives in order to serve the Lord in truth and in righteousness, in faithfulness and in love and holiness. This is a principle that we see in the scripture. And so they have resolved. And in verse number six, they are wanting the people to keep the Passover in the prescribed manner. So verse 6, it says, Then the runners went through all, throughout all the land of Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the commandment of the king. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. He's speaking directly to Israel here. 
And he's saying to these tribes, you know what? You're still here. You're still in the land. God's been gracious that you're, the fact that you're still there. He says, return to God and he will return to you. So he's appealing to them as we do when people are not serving God as they ought to or to the sinner, whatever the case may be. We make that appeal. We say, come, make the dis- return to God, repent, turn away from your sin, turn away from your disobedience or whatever the case may be and s- serve the Lord. And this is what uh, Hezekiah is doing. He's sent now runners. They are running with letters. Uh, they are moving throughout the whole land, trying to spread the word and bring and invite them to come down to Jerusalem to share and serve the Lord and seek him together. He actually appeals to them. Look at verse 8. He says, don't be stiff-necked. Don't be hard-headed. Don't be rebellious. Don't be stubborn. He says, don't be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield, yield, surrender, humble yourself. Yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may may, uh, turn away from you. So these are heavy words, aren't they? But they're real. That's the reality. Verse 9, For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be treated with compassion. If we return to the Lord and repent, God will have mercy. God will be compassionate. He will forgive. And this is the appeal that Hezekiah is making to those in the nation of Israel. He says, God is gracious, God is merciful. Look at verse 9. And he will not turn his face from you. He won't turn away. If you will turn to God, he will not turn his back on you. He will not turn his face away from you. And he's appealing to them. This is the evangelical spirit that Hezekiah is demonstrating and he's pleading with them. Come, humble yourselves, yield, return, turn to God. And so it says in verse 10, So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun. But look look at what it says. It's just so hard and sad to read. But they laughed at them and mocked them. What a terrible situation. What a sad, sad situation situation to have to observe here is hezekiah god's moving amongst the people god's at work hezekiah is excited he wants everyone to participate he wants everyone to come in join with him and he's sending out letters he's sending out runners go to the easter you know to the to what's the bible say jesus said go by the the byways and the hedges yeah that's the one get out and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. And yet, what does the Bible say? As they heard these things, rather than yield, rather than humble themselves, the Bible says that they laughed and mocked them. And that's the spirit of the world around us. They laugh and they mock. And when I tell you now, whenever somebody wants to get serious about serving the Lord, there will be those that will laugh and mock. And I'm not just talking about the sinners either. Oh, take it easy. You're getting too overboard. You're going too full on. (laughs) You know, these things can happen in our zeal. And then, you know, others want to bring that correction. But you see, Hezekiah is, is, uh, wants everyone to participate. He wants everyone to come on board, but they're laughing and they're mocking. And that's a sad situation because for all that Israel has gone through, for all the chastisement of God that's come upon the nation, you'd think that they would be humbled. <laughs> if there was a reason to see God, don't you think they'd finally get it now? And yet they're still laughing and mocking. And that's the attitude of the unsaved. That's the attitude of the world. And and unfortunately, that can be uh, the attitude of a reprobate who has hardened their heart and turned away from God and and can speak in this manner. But you see, 
One thing that I want you to realize is that laughing and mocking is from the pit of hell. And I say that deliberately. In actual fact, we'll see a little later as we study Hezekiah that the, uh, the strategy, one of the strategies of the devil is to laugh and to mock. Because he, all of a sudden now, we just want to get serious. We want to make things right. And the first, one of the, one of the, one of the strategies from hell is to try and derail you. And one of the strategies he will use is he will try and destabilize you by laugh, getting people to, to mock you and to laugh at you. What are you doing? You going crazy? Come on, take it easy, mate. Or nah, do this, do that. And so, uh, uh, and this is how the devil tries to uh, get people derailed. Remember, uh, even in the book of Nehemiah, remember Nehemiah as, a, as he's leading the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you have the assembly at Tobiah and you have uh, the, uh, the enemies and the Bible says they laughed at them and they mocked them. And they said, do they really think they're going to build the walls of Jerusalem? Look at him. And they laughed and they mocked them. And that was the spirit, but that, that laughing and mocking ch- changed a little later. You know, when, when that's not enough to derail, the, and the enemy tries uh, other, his other uh, weapons to try and uh, uh, attack us. But, this, but laughing and mocking is a, is a deliberate strategy from hell to try and cause you to be, uh, to, to just to second guess, to just be intimidated, to be embarrassed, to be ashamed. I don't know. What the, but, um, but I tell you now, we, not, we must turn a deaf ear to that type of thing. Let them laugh. Let them mock. Don't let anything deter you from making the choices, resolving those issues and preparing your heart to seek God. And if they want to laugh and they want to mock, let them. I remember when I first became a Christian and I said, you know what, I'm going to stop living like this. I'm going to stop doing that, stop doing that. And my friends around me, they laughed and they mocked me. What's wrong with you? You're going crazy. I, but you know what? I had determined in my heart. And I said, no more of this, no more of that, none of this. And, uh, and I, I, I proceeded to go forth. And it, ultimately there was a separation between my acquaintances. <laughs> but you see, this is how the kingdom of God works. But don't be moved. Don't be distracted. But as the Bible says, come out from among them. Separate yourselves, says the Lord. Because this is what God's wanting. He doesn't want a, uh, his people to be compromising. He doesn't want his people to be uh, uh, conducting themselves in, in the world in, in a, such a manner that is dishonoring. And so separation and consecration is vitally important. Holiness as well as we consider these things in the word of God. So they're laughing and they're mocking them, it says in verse 10. But look at verse 11. Nevertheless, nevertheless, some from Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. You see, it might only be a few. Nevertheless, from all of those voices and all of those attitudes of the heart of the people, there was a group that heard the call. And the Bible says that they, uh, that from these tribes, they humbled themselves and they came to Jerusalem according to the word of Hezekiah. And so, so it is. There will be those that will humble themselves and there will be those that won't. But that's the nature of what of human nature and how it works. So I want to just try to draw a line and I just want to get your attention. I want to draw a distinction here now because what we have considered up until this point is the human response to the call from Hezekiah and in relation to the call of God to choose, to resolve, to determine in our own hearts. This is the human element that we are dealing with. But now it's going to switch, and I want to draw your attention to that, because as in all things, there's the human element and the divine element. There's the human side and the divine side. As I've said before, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. The two work together, and this is exactly what we're seeing. And so now the emphasis has been upon the human response. 
But now look at the divine response and what's going on spiritually. So look at verse 12. And also, the hand of God was on Judah. You see, this is what we're dealing with. It's not some human. Hezekiah is not working in his manufacturing this himself. God is at work amongst the people. He's worked through Hezekiah. He's worked through the people. But the hand of God is what is upon them. And so the Bible says the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart. Now isn't it interesting? They had made the choice. But now God is strengthening that choice by also giving them a singleness of heart. That's what the Bible says. And so he's, he, to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. So now God is getting involved. God sees the response, the choices that we make. And when we choose, then God says, okay, now I'll give you the grace. That, I mean, there is, there is an element, let me put that into perspective. There is an element of grace that enables us to choose. Okay, this is why the letter's gone out. Okay, God is, is opening the invitation. So God's grace is already uh, at work. Okay, but the choice is theirs. And in rejecting, now God has worked with those that have come and now he's going to empower them further to obey the commandments of the Lord and he's going to give them singleness of heart to, to obey the leaders, to obey the king and the leaders. Now think about that because, you know, in the house of God, even in the New Testament, we find this. You know, when God's at work and in a healthy church and where there's healthy leadership, there will always be a submission to God and a submission to the, to the leadership. That's why the Bible says in uh, uh, Hebrews 13, obey, obey those who rule over you. For they give an account, for they, must, they watch out for your souls and they must give an account. There's always an obedience to godly leadership. And so, the, so when, when God's at work, there's a singleness of heart and the, there obe there's obedience to God, there's obedience to the God-appointed leaders that are in place. And again, we're working towards this end. And this is a sign of God's grace at work amongst his people. So they, God gives them a singleness of heart. That word singleness literally means one heart. One heart. The picture here is one of unity. The people are unified. Those that have come down from Israel from the furthest parts of the kingdom, they've come now to, they're all in Judah, and they are of one singleness of mind. They are of one heart. And again, this tells us about the, 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 the blessing that there is in unity. The Bible says, blessed are those who dwell together in unity. The Bible tells us how pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. The Bible tells us that on the day of Pentecost, they were with, in one mind and one accord. And the exhortation in the epistles is for the people of God to be of one mind in Christ Jesus. And so again, when we have this singleness of mind where there's not this division, where not, everyone's not just doing what's right in their own eyes. You know how I'm going to serve the Lord. I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll just do what I want. No, 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 no. We must obey the word of God. We must uh, be obedient to that which is written. And when, there is a, when we come into this singleness of mind and singleness of heart, this unity is a powerful thing in the kingdom of God. And it's in that place that the Bible says the Lord commands the blessing. When there is that singleness of heart, when there is that unity of spirit, and there's that oneness amongst the people of God with God, there is a blessing of in unity. And we find that right throughout the scriptures. And that's why we must endeavor to keep the bond of peace. Endeavor. Endeavor to keep it. Because like all things, these things get assaulted by the devil where they get the little factions, little schisms and all of those things and the divisions and so forth. We don't want that. We want a singleness of heart, a oneness amongst us.
be of one accord. So in verse 13. Now many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month. Now remember, this is the second month. Now I said to you before that they couldn't keep it at the appointed time, which was supposed to be the first month. And there are a few things I want us to take note of here because they're keeping the Passover, but they're not keeping it in, to the strict, in, in the strictest sense. And so in doing so, now because they're not prepared fully to keep it in the first month, Hezekiah has set it up to be kept in the second month. And this was done because in Numbers chapter 9, there was a time there uh, in that period where they were not, there were those that were not fully consecrated. So God says, listen, if you're not consecrated and clean in order to keep the Passover on the first month, then there's provision for you to keep it on the second month. That's what is found in that scripture. And so Hezekiah is operating on this principle. But even still, the people are not fully consecrated. They're still fully not prepared in the strictest sense, uh, ceremonially speaking. So that's one thing to, con- to consider. It's not, the proper, it's not the set time and the people have not sanctified themselves. And in ver- if you go down actually, if you look at verse 18... It says, for a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. Now, think about this, because this is a serious thing. You don't, when it comes, we know, we know when God sets down a pattern, when he says this is, the, this is how it is, you, you have to hold fast to it. And so, otherwise, there's consequences. And yet in this instance now, the people have not fully consecrated, but they're partaking contrary to that which has been written. And we could look at that and we say, oh my gosh, they're disobeying God. God's wrath is going to be aroused, God's anger, because this is serious. You can't, you can't just flippantly break the, the, the structure and the ordinance of God. But there's some other things that are happening here that override what's going on and I want us to take note of this so it says in verse 14 if you go back having determined to keep the the Passover it says they arose and took away the altars that were in Jerusalem and they took away all the incense altars and cast them into the brook Kidron they went out through Jerusalem and they got all those altars all those idolatrous altars and they destroyed them and they chucked them and threw them and cast them, the Bible says, into the book Kidron, off the cliff, threw them away and destroyed them. And, they, they, and what they were doing is they were cleansing themselves and preparing themselves and said, you know what, we're going to, this is the altar, the temple that they had restored. This is the place of worship where we will worship in spirit and in truth. And so you can see the, the, the sincerity of their heart here. You can see the preparations that they are making in order to partake. And this is important. And so because we know, as we just read later in verse 18, that they partook of the Passover because they were not fully cleansed, they had not cleansed themselves, and yet they ate contrary to what was written. And so what does Hezekiah do? Look at what it says. It says in verse 18, Hezekiah prayed for them. And he said, may the Lord God provide atonement for everyone. So in other words, Hezekiah is saying, Lord, I know this is not technically right. They haven't, they're not prepared, they're not cleansed in order to partake. But Lord, he says, make atonement for everyone who has partaken. Now listen to what he says in the next verse, verse 19. This, on, on this premise, on this basis, who prepares his heart to seek God. The Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. He's he's saying, God, I I want your sovereign mercy in this situation. Technically, I know this is not right. But God, you've seen the people. You've seen the context of the circumstances. The heart of the people has prepared themselves to seek you. 
and he's saying, Lord, make atonement. And that's what's happening throughout this as well. They are making atonement. And so therefore, God extends grace and forgiveness in that instant. Why? Because the people have humbled themselves, because the people are seeking God. And as I was studying this, one man says, this scripture is a conundrum to the legalist. (laughs) Because the legalist will say, listen, you've broken the law. You can't partake. God's wrath is going to destroy us all. And so you need to stone these folk. But Hezekiah is praying, God, you see what's going on. You see the, and so again, it's the context. It's the spirit of what's going on here. And now they have done wrong technically, but, but um, he doesn't, uh, um, Hezekiah doesn't say dismiss it, Lord. He says make atonement for it. And that's important because all sin is sin. God's a holy God. But he's saying, Lord, make atonement for that sin. Cover it. Forgive them. And as they are offering the the Passover lamb, as they are preparing their offerings to present to the Lord, God is making atonement for for that particular sin on the basis. Why? Because they have prepared their hearts to seek God. God listened to Hezekiah's prayer. Listen to what it says in verse 20. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. He could have judged them right there and then, sent and consumed them. But rather he had mercy on them because he saw the preparation, he saw the context, he saw what was going on around him. And this is important because you know what? In revival, when God sees... His people are intent on humbling themselves when he sees that they are intent on getting things right, when he sees that they have made every effort to do what's right. And uh, he can, uh, in, his, in his grace and his mercy, he can forgive, he can cleanse. And through the blood of Jesus Christ, amen, thank God we have that cleansing. We can make confession and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God saw the desire and intent of the hearts of the people. They traveled. They'd prepared themselves. They'd gone to great lengths to even get there and be there. And really it comes, what comes to my mind is that scripture in the New Testament from James where he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember we looked in the, before I even started this series, I did a, a message from Habakkuk, Lord, in the midst of the years. Revive us, Lord, in the midst of years. In wrath, remember mercy. Mercy. God, we, we are so dependent upon the mercies of Without the mercies of God, we would all be consumed. That's what it says in Lamentations. God is merciful. And if we humble ourselves, he has mercy on us. Praise the Lord. God can and does sovereignly extend his mercy. This is our hope. But we can't ignore the prerequisite. That prerequisite is that we have to prepare our heart to seek him. You have to be serious. You have to resolve some issues. And God will observe these things. So they've humbled themselves. And as I was thinking about this, as I was preparing the message The people have humbled themselves. They've come before God. There's repentance. There's confession. There's a a humility amongst the people. And I I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 57. Because there's a particular scripture here that that is relevant to what we're talking about. And in Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15. Listen to the words of God through the prophet Isaiah. It says, For thus says the Holy and Lofty One, who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. That's where he dwells. But he dwells with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. See, God, the high and holy and lofty one who inhabits all eternity, who's, who's the heavens 
are his throne. And yet, what does the scripture say? I dwell with him who has a contrite and broken spirit. Not the one, you know, that's why Jesus said there was the, uh, the tax collector who went and started beating his chest and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. But then there was the, uh, the, the Pharisee who says, oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that, man. I fast twice a week. I'm a pretty good guy. Jesus said, you know who went away justified? Because God dwells with that broken spirit. When we come to that place where we see our sin against God, when we say, God, I deserve hell, God, I'm so sorry, God, what have I done? And when we break before him and we humble ourselves, then the Bible says God dwells, the high and holy one who inhabits all eternity when he sees that he's drawn to it. He comes to that broken and contrite spirit. He, the Bible says he won't despise. David even said in Psalm 51, after he had committed his sin and humbled himself before the Lord, he says, a contrite and broken spirit you will not despise. You, won't, you will not despise. You won't turn your face. As Hezekiah said, he won't turn his face away from you if you humble yourself. If you break before him, he's not going to reject you. That's what, this is the principle in Scripture. So let's read on here in, in his, uh, sorry, Isaiah 15. It says, with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit. Now listen to what it says. To revive the spirit of the humble. To revive the heart of the contrite one. This is what we've been looking at, revival. And I said to you before, revival doesn't begin with everyone being happy. It begins with a broken and contrite spirit. And the Lord says, when I see the brokenness, when I see the contriteness and the contrition in a heart that has broken before me because of their sin, God says, I will revive. I will breathe my life. I will bring life to that individual or to that people, whatever the case may be. And what a glorious, merciful God he is. Amen? When right at that moment, we deserve hell. We deserve wrath. And yet God says, I'm going to give you love and grace and I'm going to give you life and I'm going to revive you. This is revival. So to revive the heart of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Look at verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the, spirit, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls for which I have made. Now listen, what God is saying this. God is saying, I understand the souls of men. I understand my creation that I have created. He knows and sees the sin uh, and the corruption of sin and the, the state of men as a result. And if God was to remain angry forever, we'd all be snuffed out. But the Bible says that God, uh, he says, I can't always be angry forever because if, I was, if that was my disposition, then I would crush my creation. He says their spirit would fail. I would destroy their souls if I was just like that. But he says, I, 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 uh, I, can't, I can't be angry forever, but if you will humble yourselves, if you will be broken before me, he says, I will bestow upon you such love, grace and mercy and love. And that's, this is how God is, amen. This is the glorious works and ways of the Lord. You know, there are times when we think, gosh, God just can't. He can't forgive me for what I've done. He can't accept me now. But if you will break, if you will humble yourself, if you will return to the Lord, the Bible is clear, God will give you mercy. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so what we just read in Isaiah is really what's happening amongst Hezekiah, amongst the, the nation of Judah and amongst Israel, those that have come. And now look at what it says in verse 21, because God has he's healed the people, he's met with them. He set them free. He hasn't held them accountable and he's put away their sin because they've taken, partaken of the, the feast unceremonially. 
But it says in verse 21, so the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. Remember I said to you, revivals don't begin with a happy heart, but they end with one. Because when God cleanses, when God forgives, when God meets with us, and after we come to that place of surrender and brokenness, you know what? We, the joy that will flood our souls, the life of God that comes into our hearts. And I tell you, you can't help but be great, great gladness. Not just glad, great gladness, great joy, rejoicing, amen. And so that's why you can get excited in the house of God. Amen? That's why you can say hallelujah, praise the Lord. That's why you can demonstrate a, a level of emotion in its proper context. I understand that. that. In the church today, people want all the happiness, but they don't want the cross. They don't want the brokenness and contrition, but they want the happiness. And that's the dilemma of the modern church. They want to make them happy. You know what? I've told you this. They're serving asterisk. And they've set up groves. And that word asterisk has to do with making everyone happy. That's why God said don't put groves around the altar because uh, he wanted them to see this, the penalty of their sin which was the sacrifice and the blood that had to be shed for them. And then after you realise the goodness and grace of God, then you can be happy and blessed. But not before. Great gladness. And the people are rejoicing. The Bible says that um, uh, in verse 22, and Hezekiah gave encouragement to the Levites and, he and uh, they taught the good knowledge of the word. And listen, the people made confession to the Lord God of their fathers. The whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days. This is two weeks. And the two weeks, the Bible says, they are rejoicing with gladness. And so you can see the spirit of what's going on here. It says in verse 26, as I bring this to a conclusion, there was great joy, great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. That's what makes the events of Hezekiah so significant. The Passover hadn't been kept for years, years and years. And, and joining together with, you know, remember, since then they, they partook as one, Israel and Judah. Now Hezekiah has extended the invitation to all. We know that many didn't come, but those that did, this is symbolic of the fact that they came together. There's revival. God has moved amongst his people. And so it says in verse 27, Then the priests and the Levites arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place in heaven. In other words, you know what? Because they were right before God, God was listening to their prayers. God was listening to their requests. And the, their prayers were coming up to God. And that's what the Bible teaches us clearly because the Bible says if we, regard, if, if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. If we're in disobedience to God and we just want to pray that God would somehow bless us, how can that be so? But when we humble ourselves before God, when we break before God, then God forgives and he cleanses and he blesses us. And then, amen, then we pray and the Bible says the heavens are open and he hears our prayers. Our prayers rise up. Listen to Psalm 66, verse 16, as I conclude. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth. So this is a place of brokenness. I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. And that's, that's the God we serve. 
Our God is a good God. Can you say amen? Our God is a great God, a loving God. And if we will humble ourselves, he will cleanse, he will forgive, he will revive your heart this morning. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, we just thank you this morning for the word of God. We thank you for the ministry, God, that we have partaken of. Lord, I know that you are faithful to speak and to every heart. And I pray, minister, Lord, and in doing so, God, revive. Revive the broken. Revive the, the humble. Revive the contrite spirit. Oh, God, have mercy. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, for what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. Blessed be your name. Amen. God bless you all this morning.